Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. I actually, even though this is, how many years have we been having this? It says in the bulletin, 40? 40. I had never even heard that there was such a Sunday until I moved to Nevada. I don't, I don't know why, but whatever the case may be, you know, what a great opportunity to, you know, remember uh, that every human life is, is special and is, is holy before God, that we are created in the image of God. Um, I have a lot of things on my heart to share this morning, and I don't know how far I'm going to get through the notes, but if we don't get to something, we're going to get to it eventually. We're going to keep moving through 2 Thessalonians, and uh, I'm going to share all the things that the Lord's put on my heart, but I want to tell you something, that um, this is really a time to have your ear tuned to the Spirit of God. I mean, it's always a time, but this is really a time to have an ear to hear. Because the Lord is pouring out revelation. And if you're, I, I just keep coming back to this. It was so simple, but the word that, that John shared a couple of weeks ago about just reading your Bible every day, you know, that's probably the most important word you're going to hear this year. <laughs> that if you are in the Word of God, if, if you are abiding in the words of Jesus and His Word is abiding in you, then the Lord is going to open your heart and your mind to see and understand things that other people don't see and understand. And it's very important that we have revelation today. It's very important that we understand the mind of God. The scripture says that we have the mind of Christ. So I of late have felt myself like overloaded with revelation. So (laughs) if... um, uh, and I don't feel like I even have enough time to, to process everything. And, and that's good. That means God is speaking. So listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he is saying. You know, this is an election year. This is a year where there's wars all over the place. And who knows what's going to happen in this year. But the Lord has put on my heart that it's a year for him to pour out his mercy on our lives. For him to pour out his grace. It's a year for the Great Commission to continue moving forward, for people to be saved, for people to be healed, for people to be delivered. And we need to have an ear to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. So, having said that, uh, before I get into the message that I had planned this morning, I want to share some things about um, the sanctity of of human life. And it'll just take a a few minutes. Um, I'm trying to think of of where, where to start. So yesterday I was reading, I'll start with this. Yesterday I was reading, not the Bible, just reading. I like to read. And um, I've been reading through a certain book, and it takes a long time for me to read through it because every, where, every single paragraph has something I want to think about. And I've got it all marked up, all marked up and everything. And it's probably the third time I've read this book. Uh, and I came acor- across this passage in the book, the, the book, it's called The Brothers Karamazov. If you've never read it, you should read it. You probably won't, but you should. And, <laughs> and it's a, a, a quote from Dostoevsky. 
So just, just listen to this. It, there's so many things in this book that's written in the 19th century that were really quite prophetic. And uh, this is one of them. So in this, this passage, a, a certain priest is speaking on his deathbed. And he says uh, to the people that are listening to him, he says, look at the worldly and all who set themselves up above the people of God. Has not God's image and his truth been distorted in them? They have science, but in science there is nothing but what can be understood by the senses. The spiritual world, the higher part of man's existence, is rejected altogether, dismissed with a sort of triumph, even with hatred. The world has proclaimed the reign of freedom, especially of late, but what do we see in this freedom of theirs? Nothing but slavery and self-destruction. For the world says, you have needs, so satisfy them. For have you not the same rights as the most rich and the powerful enjoy? Fear not the satisfaction of your needs, and yea, even multiply your desires. This is the sum of the modern doctrine of the world. In this they see freedom. And what follows from this, and what follows from this right to multiply one's desires. For the rich, isolation and spiritual suicide. For the poor, envy and murder. For they have been granted rights, but the means to satisfy their needs has been withheld from them. They maintain that the world is getting more and more united, more and more bound together in a brotherly community by inventions, this part was like, wow, how did he write that? By inventions that overcome distances and transmit thoughts as through the very air. Alas, put no faith in such a bond of union, interpreting freedom as the multiplication and instantaneous satisfaction of needs, men distort their own nature by fostering in themselves all sorts of senseless and foolish desires and habits and ridiculous fantasies, fancies. So I was reading that, I was like, wow. How did he know the internet would exist? He was probably thinking about telegraphs, and that's probably where he got the idea there. But that's really, you know, what, what has happened. And, and our young people today are, you know, and not everything in the internet is bad. In fact, there's tons of great stuff in the internet. But who, who would have imagined that we would have access to the greatest libraries of the world, but all we would do is sit around watching TikTok and YouTube shorts, you know, or whatever, you know, or, Scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. It's not just young people. It's all of us, you know, that we have access to so much, and, and, but we don't, we, we don't use it. And um, without getting into conspiracy theories or whatever, although most of them have turned out to be true, um, I just, I just want, want to say that, you know, what Dostoevsky wrote there is truly what has happened, that people have multiplied their desires and it's really meant multiplying their dependencies and that they've become slaves to the very sin that they serve. Jesus said it a lot simpler in John 8:34. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. And in other words, you'll be put to death by the sin that you serve. But the Son, He does remain forever, so if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And I don't want to do a whole sermon on what real freedom is and the responsibility that's carried with freedom, but I want to say that the sanctity of human life, you know, 
all, all this talk and everything about abortion and everything, it, it really has its, its roots in these ideas that we can just, you know, like a t-shirt I used to have when I was a kid, my brother actually had it, I don't know why my parents bought it, but it just said, it had three monkeys on it, and it said, if it feels good, do it. And that's the philosophy of, of the world today. It's always stuck with me for some reason. I can still see that t-shirt in front of my eyes. You know, that, that's the philosophy of the world today. That's the philosophy that's being preached in the, on the internet. That's the philosophy of the life. Uh, you know, that, that, that the world lives today because it is based in, on, on so-called science. And you can listen to the greatest physicists, the greatest scientists and, um, in, in the world, and most of them are atheists because there's no sensible or, you know, um, uh, empirical proof of God in their mind. And science only deals with things that can be understood by the senses. So when you cut off the entire spiritual life of a person, we are spirits, and we are created in the image of God, then the whole image of God is completely uh, distorted in us. So, um, so we just have this idea of, you know, whatever needs we have, you know, they, they just have to be satisfied. We can do whatever we feel like doing. And so that's led to a place where, uh, I think it was Pete was telling me, I think, uh, he was at the doctor's and he had to fill out some state, uh, he, he could tell it better, but some, some state questionnaire that they wanted you to fill out and on there where you put down your gender, he said there were so many different points, I didn't even know what more than half of those things were that were written there that you could check off for what your gender is. You know, you can just decide whatever gender you are when everybody still knows that there's just male and female uh, God created us, as it says in the scripture. But if you say things, I mean, something as simple as that today, or, or you know, uh, people consider you to be some kind of bigot or some kind of, you know, whatever, radical, strange person, you know, just because you believe the Bible. Well, it doesn't change anything. It's still true that God created us. This is the instruction book, and this is the only thing that works. It's the only thing that works. And our, our kids and our young people who aren't married yet, they, they need to be raised with an understanding, of, um, an understanding of this sanctity of human life. Well, I heard a great quote from Ladd yesterday, of all people. I'll have to share it now. And uh, it wasn't his quote. He had read it somewhere, but at the marriage... Uh, uh, course yesterday evening he shared this with me and I thought man this is our young people need to hear this and the quote just simply went like this that if a young man marries a godly woman and it would work for a young woman marries a godly man also but if a young man marries a godly woman he doesn't need a test drive because he already knows the manufacturer do you get that and everybody's lives are lived today with test driving everything. Um, when Pastor Mark from Silver Springs, I think it was either here or it was there in Silver Springs, I don't know, but he said something that was really good, that you know, I don't, I don't believe in this whole dating culture that we have today, because dating is just practicing for divorce. Because you date, you break up, you date, you break up, you date, it's all test driving. You know, most young people, I don't know most, I don't know the stats, but most young people around me that I see 
Um, you know, and, and God bless them. You know, I've dealt with this in, in, in my own family. It's just how it is, you know, and you just take what you can get and you bless them and you love them as far, you know, but you don't change your position in the Word of God. But most young people do not get married before they begin to live together. Because the philosophy and the idea is, you know, let's just test drive this. Let's check this out, you know. And then they don't, they don't want to have kids because the philosophy and the idea is, well, we can't have kids until we've got X amount of money and all this security and all these things. It's not fair to bring kids into this world. And then they never get to that X amount of money. Or when they do, they're already like, we're too old and tired to have kids now. And, you know, not, I don't want to, you know, spend all the time talking about this kind of stuff. But this, this overall idea is that human life is, is not uh, sanctified before God. It, it just doesn't, doesn't matter. And we've become this, we, we, we actually, our children are taught in this culture, even in school to be slaves to sin. And, and they don't even know it. They don't even understand it. So, you know, just something like this, the, the big question, when does life begin? You know, is that when the heartbeat uh, it can, can be uh, sensed with modern technology? You know, when the heartbeat begins, is that when life begins? At, at what point is that, 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 that creation inside of a mother's womb, at what point is is that a human being? You know, the, the, the question isn't about murdering human beings. You know, it is, actually, but nobody's talking like that. Oh, you just kill all the people you want to kill. They, they put it in this, they couch it in this understanding of, well, that's not a human being. That is a part of the mother's body. And so a woman can do whatever she wants with her own body, and not just to hit out at the women too much, but with the men, the man's idea is I can just plant seed anywhere I want to. And it don't matter. I don't have to take care of that. Nobody wants to take responsibility for, for what really is the planting of a seed and the growth of a new human, human being. And, you know, because we are spiritual, maybe you've never had this thought before, but because we are spiritual people created in the image of God, we are sexual people. All of us are sexual people because we are spiritual. And the closest thing we have physically to that image of God is that we can actually create other human beings. And we don't do it without God's help. We don't even know how we're doing it. And that God actually made that act something so enjoyable and so pleasurable. And yet that's the thing, and that's why that's the thing that Satan has so attacked to distort and destroy the image of God in us. So the, the question of when does life begin, for example, I'm just going to go through a few things here because it's Sanctity of Life Sunday. <laughs> and, and before I do, I want to say something. Uh, the reason I'm sharing this with you is not to bring any condemnation or any guilt. I've shared these kinds of things for decades, okay? When, we, when I first was in Russia and pastoring in Russia, almost every single woman in the church had had multiple abortions, Okay because it was the go-to form of birth control at a certain period of time in the Soviet Union, not for the whole period of time, but at that period of time when they had been, you know, growing up and things. It's just, it's just how it was. And there's no condemnation. There's no guilt. That's what being saved is all about, is, is being delivered from our sin and having our sin forgiven us. If it's forgiven us. And in every abortion, there's not just a, a woman involved in that. There's a man involved in that. And oftentimes, there are multiple people that are involved in that. 
So I'm not saying any of these things to bring condemnation and guilt. What, what I'm saying is that if we continue in ignorance and we continue in sin just because of our ignorance, and when God is giving us light and understanding and we raise our children in that, then, then, then we're doing something that we really should not be doing. We need to understand the word of God. We need to understand how precious human life is to God. I think one of the problems why abortion has so multiplied and continues to multiply in our nation and around the world is we just don't want kids. And we just don't want kids. They cramp our style. You know, they don't allow us to live the life that we want to live. It's this, this idea that, that, you know, luxury and, and wealth, this very thing Dostoevsky was writing about. Well, don't I have the same rights as the rich and powerful? Yeah, okay, we all have the same rights, but what about the responsibilities? You know, and, and that, that's the thing. So when does life begin? Let me talk about that for a minute. So the Bible talks about it, the, the seed, you know, the seed of Abraham. I don't know if you know this, but the Greek word for seed is sperma, okay? It's actually, if you translated it into modern English, you could just as much write the sperm of Abraham, okay? Don't laugh or don't get offended. You know, I know we've got all different ages of people here, but, but that's what it is. It's a seed. And when the seed is planted, it unites with an egg, right? Okay? First day. First day. That fertilized seed egg thing, right? It's called a zygote. That's a Greek word also. It means a yoke. It's when two different uh, uh, DNA packets come together and a new... Uh, human is made. It's a miracle of God. And there are two cells, and they are yoked together as one. I want to tell you something, that that first day, that creation is not, in the, is not implanted in the womb of a mother, okay? If you know any about sex ed, you already know this, but, it, but it's, it's good for us to remember this. That impregnation or that fertilization does not occur in the womb of the mother. That's called a zygote. It's a Greek word. It means, it means yoke. That zygote, as it's called, has a completely unique packet of a DNA. It does not have the DNA of the mother. It does not have the DNA of the father. It has a new packet of DNA made from the DNA of the mother and the father. So I want to be very clear about this. Spiritually and physically, that is a human being. It doesn't have anything to do with when the heart starts beating, okay? This is even science tells us this. This is a unique creation, and it's not yet planted in the womb. After this comes a, and I'm making it simple because I'm not a doctor or anything, but it comes the blastocyst, and that's still not implanted in the womb, and it's a multiple cell thing, person. And you look at it on these pictures, they don't look like a person to me, but it's a person, okay? And I'll explain this in just a minute. Blastocyst also comes from the Greek, and it means a sprout, something that's sprouting. Then comes what we call the embryo, right? That's also a Greek word. An embryo means a young shoot that is growing. These aren't, they sound like creepy science words, but they were normal words in Greek, okay? And, and, and sometimes by understanding that, we, we can understand more that this isn't something on a slide under a microscope that this is a human life, that this is a young shoot that is growing. 
So when it's implanted in the womb, then it develops into an embryo and a placenta, right? After this, we have the fetus. The Greek word means a planting, and even the ancient Greeks used the word fetus to refer to any child. It means, the word actually means a child. And then the, the fetus is born, and we have an infant because they, they are born. So if we understand this, then we understand that all of human life is a degree of maturation. There are different degrees of maturing, right? The zygote is just two cells. I used to be a zygote. Hi. Now I've got so many cells, it's uncountable. You know, but I used to be a zygote. We all used to be little zygotes. You know, but that was actually me, that little zygote on that first day. There are just different levels of maturity, but there is not a differentiation of kind. Okay? The DNA in that zygote is the DNA in me right now. I'm making this overly simplified. I'm not trying to do a science uh, teaching here, and I'm not qualified to do that. But there is not a degree of kind. You understand? There's a degree of maturation, and that continues unto physical death. You know, my body at 59 does not react to things the way it did at 29 even, because there's, a, there's a d different levels of maturation, and honestly, I'm over the hill already. Not over the hill spiritually, <laughs> but, you know, you reach this point where your body actually is, quote, over the hill. You're starting to go down. But still, my human life is sanctified before God. You're not going to kill me. You know, there's a degree of maturation, but not a degree of kind. So you can take the example of human tissue that is severed from a body. For example, a radical example, like a limb that's been amputated. So say somebody's arm was amputated. I don't know what they do with those amputated arms. But for a few moments, I'm sure it's laying there on the, on the operating table or you know, whatever they do with that. That amputated arm actually still has the exact same DNA in it as that entire body, right? But it is not capable of developing into a human being again. You know, we're not earthworms. It's not capable of, or, or what else, salamanders? Some things you cut off their tails and it grows back or whatever. But that that arm is not capable of developing into a human being again. Why? It has that same DNA in it. It's, it's, a, it's a mystery and the miracle of God's creation. You know, it, that human tissue has that same DNA, but it's not a human being anymore. It's gone. It, it's dead, right? That shows us, even scientifically, that we are spirit beings. We are something higher than just physical beings. And then people say, well, when the, you know, some people that really believe in abortion say, well, when, when the uh, child is viable to live outside of the womb, then abortion should be illegal. You know, but before that child can live outside the womb on its own, then abortion's okay, because that's not really a human being if he can live outside of the, if he cannot live outside his mother's womb on his own, then that's not really a human being. That's a part of the, that's just tissue, a part of the mother's body, right? But here's, here's the truth of it. Nobody can live on their own. No creature on planet Earth is equipped to live on planet Earth by itself. I cannot live on my own. There's no such thing as a human being that can, is viable to live on his own. 
You know, I can't feed myself. Somebody's got to have a farm. Somebody's got to do, I mean, you go down the line. I cannot live on my own. If I was the last person on earth, I'd be the last person on earth because I wouldn't be able to live on my own, right? So that argument is com complete nonsense. So it's very important that we understand that from the moment of conception, that is a human life, okay? And the world's going to tell you that that's complete foolishness, but it's not. That is a human life. So don't go test driving each other. It's, it's foolishness. You know, if you're going to plant a seed, then you need to take responsibility for that seed that's going to grow into a human being. And if you're going to receive that seed to be planted, then you need to be prepared for what God is going to do through that. And you can't just pray, oh God, I pray I don't get pregnant, because it just doesn't work like that. You know, that there, that this is a law of how God has created us. He's given us the power to create. That's why it's so important that sex be inside of marriage. And I know that sounds so old-fashioned, so stupid, and all these kind of things, but you need to understand something that a marriage is the most prophetic aspect of our lives that we will ever have. That a married couple is designed by God to reveal the glory of Christ and his church to the world around us. And children need to not just be raised in a marriage, but they need to be conceived inside of a marriage. That's God's way. You know, again, this isn't for condemnation or anything like that. No, no one single human being in here has not failed in some way in, in these areas. All of us are guilty before God's law, okay? I, I understand that. I mean, Jesus said, if you even looked on a woman to lust, you already committed the adultery in your heart. So this isn't for condemnation. It's for us to understand these things, okay? So, what, what, now this is the part some people don't like when I talk about, it, but it's just the way it is. You have to understand this, okay? You need to understand that there are chemical abortions, and just because uh, the Supreme Court made a good decision, decision that I didn't think they'd ever make, but they actually made it, and overturned Roe v. Wade, that doesn't mean abortion has stopped. Okay? The availability of abortion is, you know, it, it's just as available today. A chemical abortion is, uh, and again, I'm oversimplifying this. Michelle could tell you a lot more about the, the facts of this kind of stuff. But several weeks into the pregnancy, when you actually know you're pregnant, there are certain chemicals you can take, medicines you can take to abort that child. And that's a chemical abortion. You don't have to go into a clinic. You don't have to have an operation. It causes something akin to a miscarriage in a sense, but it's caused by, by these, these medicines. But that's still an abortion. But do you know most Christians or fundamental or evangelical Christians, type of Christians like us, would say, oh yeah, we agree with that and, and we know that. But, you know, it's really important for us to understand that there are many forms of birth control, the most popular forms of birth control also can cause abortions. So you have the morning after pill, you have, if anybody still uses them, the IUD, you have injections, you have a thing called the patch, you have the thing called the pill, and people don't understand that those also can cause abortions because the egg can still be fertilized in other words, the zygote can appear, the human being is created, but these things prevent that from being implanted in the womb. And so is that still an abortion? Yes, it's still an abortion. And again, I'm not saying those things 
for any kind of condemnation. I'm saying those things because it's important that you have knowledge and that you have understanding. So I'm not going to get into all this, but we, we will at some point. In fact, I have it on my heart to do some marriage and family teaching around Valentine's Day after we, after we finish this. Uh, because we're going through the course right now, the marriage course, and, it, and it's really good. It's really, in fact, this is the best one we've ever done. I'm, I'm really enjoying it for, for ourselves. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's no way to plan a family. There are plenty of ways to plan a family, and there are God's ways to plan a family. But the easy ways, the ways that are the most popular, almost all of those things can cause an abortion. So let me just say, you know, that... Uh, you need to make decisions in your own family, but you need to understand what God's plan is and raise your girls and your boys in a way that they understand these things, that the greatest thing they can do in life, the world calls it abstaining, but it's not really abstaining, it's just walking in holiness. The greatest thing they can do in life is in their teenage years, learn to control the desires that they have, not multiply them like Dostoevsky said, in that thing, because you're gonna live with those desires for all your life. So that's why God gave us those teenage years, because you can make mistakes, you can mess up on some things, but you can learn to control those desires during that life, during those teenage years, in order to have that happy marriage. So the Bible says, I think one of the best verses that, that always stuck with me when I was a teenager was what Paul said to Timothy, flee from youthful lusts. He didn't say, feel guilty about the youthful lusts. He didn't say, stop having those youthful lusts. I tried that when I was a teenager. Well, what am I supposed to do with them? They just keep coming back. You know, that's just how it is. These hormones, this, this, that, and everything. That's not what Paul said. He said, flee from them. You know, don't give them a place. Learn to control those things. In one of the earliest places in the scripture, when Cain was getting ready to murder Abel, and he went ahead and murdered Abel, but God said to him, sin is crouching at your door but you can have the mastery over him. You can control that. You know, you can take responsibility. Freedom is not freedom if it's without responsibility. It's, it's only slavery then. So that's my little thing I wanted to share with you at the beginning here. Now let's open up 2 Thessalonians. And in my mind, in my heart, and I can't always, can't always uh, uh, share this with you or or I don't feel like I can get other people to see this, but all these things are actually the same thing. This is all tied into what I'm going to say right now. We're talking about the love of the truth. The love of the truth. And so 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, what I'm going to start with, and it's probably all I'm going to do today, is kind of some repeat of what, of what we uh, were looking at last week, but I want to look at the words of Jesus. So in 2 Timothy chapter 2, last week we read chapter 1, we moved into chapter 2. I talked with you about how 2 Thessalonians is a martial message. It's, a, it's God's martial message to the church in the last days. And what I mean by that is that this is an epistle that is characterized by a military spirit. It is characterized by a call to stand and to fight for the interests and the rights of our God. Okay. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and I'll just read these right now, Paul says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure 
or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy or the falling away comes first. And the man of lawlessness, a.k.a. Antichrist, is revealed the son of destruction. And we talked about this a lot last week. But these verses reveal to us the time of the Lord's coming, the time of our victory. And I told you last week it's one of the most important things, that we have this, this parameter that we can judge victory by. I talked to you about how and so often, like in Afghanistan and other wars that you know our nation has been involved in, it's not always exactly clear when do we declare victory <laughs> and when do we pull out. And then you get these things where you pull out of a theater of war and you declare victory, but everybody knows that eh, it's kind of a lame victory. We didn't really do anything except spend a lot of money and lose a lot of lives, right? So, so the Lord wants us to understand the parameters of victory. He wants us to understand the time. And the timing is very clear that when Jesus comes back, that we're going to continue fighting and standing until it, occupying, as the scripture says in the King James, until he comes. Occupying until he comes. That we cannot leave our post. We have to stand with this love for the truth. Okay? And then we looked at verses 4 and 5, where it says, who opposes, talking about the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And we talked about, uh, and then he says, do not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things. So we already talked about this last week, and we looked at some scripture in Daniel, some other places, if you missed that message or if you want to hear it again. Did I put it in the podcast? I can't remember. We'll get it on the podcast, the audio one, but it's out there on the YouTube, Facebook thing somewhere too, and on our page. But we, we already talked about this and how the, the, that we understand our enemy and that the enemy is the Antichrist, okay? The enemy is this spirit of untruth or the father of lies, Satan. And the enemy is not each other as we saw in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, verse 15, that we'll get to. And that our battle is not against flesh and blood, that it is a spiritual battle. But it's really interesting to note that Paul says here that when I was with you, don't you remember that I was talking to you about these things, right? And if you remember, I told you that, and you can see this in the book of Acts, that Paul was with them for only about one month. He only had a few opportunities to preach to them. And can you imagine that he used those opportunities to talk about the last days? They used those opportunities to explain to them about the second coming of Jesus. That's how important it is to the central gospel message, okay, and to our salvation. And so he says, don't you remember that I was talking to you about these things, that I was telling you about these things? So when we read that in 2 Thessalonians, we have to understand that that means he's talking about things that Jesus said. And he's talking about things that are written in the Old Testament. Because if he says, I was telling you about these things, that means he was preaching to them from the Scripture. And so he was telling them things that had been revealed to him that Jesus had taught, 
And Jesus was teaching things based on what's written in the Old Testament prophets. So what I want to do is, and we're still kind of reviewing from last week. What I want to do is for, to have you go back to Matthew chapter 24. In, in a lot of senses, we already talked about all this last week, but I want you to see it in the words of Jesus because it's so simple. In Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 24, and let's read verses 15, 21, and then 29 through 31. I'm going to start with those. So Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is answering the questions of his disciples. Um, they, they go out, they're marveling about how amazing everything in the temple is, and Jesus says, not one stone uh, here will be left upon another, which is another entirely different, extremely interesting topic. How then could that western wall be a part of that temple? But we'll get into that some other time. doesn't matter. But Jesus said right now, Jesus said not one stone is going to be left on top of another. And then the disciples begin asking him these questions. Tell us when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus is answering those questions here. So he's talking about his second coming. And in verse 15, verse 15, he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Okay? So Jesus says that what I'm telling you now is based on the revelation, a part of which we read last week, that was given to Daniel the prophet. And you can open the book of Daniel and you can read it. And may the reader understand. You can have an ear to hear this and you can understand this. So Jesus isn't even telling them something new. He's saying this was revealed to Daniel the prophet. Okay? Let the reader understand. If you have one of those red letter Bibles, the part let the reader understand is in black and in parentheses. And that's most likely correct. Most likely that's Matthew, by the Holy Spirit, adding an explanation point to what Jesus said. That you need to understand this. This is really, really important. Okay, that's verse 15. Then look with me at verse 21. 21. It says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning uh, of the world until now nor ever will. So what's Jesus talking? He's talking about time. Notice in verse 15, he says, when you see. When is a time word, right? And in verse 21, he says, then there will be. Then is a time word. He's talking about the timing. And then in verse 29, look down at verse 29. It says, but immediately after, the, after is a time word, right? He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then, time word, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. We read about this last week. And they will, they will gather together. If you're using modern English popular word, this is the so-called rapture. He will send forth his angels. You got angels, you got a great trumpet, and you got a gathering together. What is that? That's what's called in 
Hal Lindsey and further on down the line talk, and before Hal Lindsey, the rapture, okay? I'm not opposed to the word the rapture, but we need to understand what it is. He says that the angels will come, there'll be a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. We looked at all this last week, okay? So what's Jesus saying here? First of all, he tells us when this is going to start. He gives us a start time, and he gives us a finish time. There's nothing confusing about it. It's very clear. The start time, he tells us in verse 15, that when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. And he says that if you are aware of what is written in Scripture and you have an ear to hear, you will see this clearly and you will understand what it is. Okay? I'm not here to tell you what it is because I don't know. But you will see it clearly and you will understand what it is. I do actually have a whole lot of ideas about it, but I'm not going to talk about those right now. <laughs> it says that you will see this clearly. Well, I think we can already see clearly that there is an abomination in the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ today. Okay? So we better get ready because something, some event is going to happen that's going to be clearly understood and, and you can spend time in Scripture and you can meditate on these things and you can get pretty close to an understanding of how this is going to happen. But get ready. If you don't feel like you can get ready, listen to your pastor at least. Listen to people that are getting ready. You know. But get ready. Tanya talked about it this morning. Let's be the five wise virgins. Because you might be thinking, well, that's okay. The wise virgins are collecting enough oil for me. Everything will be cool. Plus, Jesus is probably going to come back seven years before they say he's going to come back, and everything's going to be great. But what happened to those foolish virgins? Well, it turned out their theology was wrong. And Jesus came back a lot later than they thought. And when he came back, they're like looking around for their matches. They find the matches, but they can't light the lamps because they don't have any oil. So they say to the wise virgins, give us some oil. And the wise virgins, because they're wise, say, we're not going to give you no oil. If I give you my oil, I won't have no oil. Go to the store and buy the oil. So they went out to the stores, but they're all closed. And so they got left out. They got locked out. I don't know what that means. Okay? Does that mean you go to hell? I don't even want to go there. I just don't want to find out. Let's just be the wise virgins. Let's be prepared. We need to have our hearts prepared because Jesus gives us a very clear starting time for these things, that you will see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. And he says, and then there will be, there will be a great tribulation like has never happened on the earth. You think the worst of times is behind us? You're wrong. The worst of times is still in front of us. Things will not get better. They'll keep getting worse until Jesus comes back. Well, suck it up, okay? That's why this is a call to battle, 2 Thessalonians. That's what he's saying to them. Don't think everything's going to get better. You've got to occupy until Jesus comes. You've got to stand your ground. You've got to be lovers of the truth. So let's go over to Daniel chapter 9. Try to do this fast. Get as far as I can get today. Daniel chapter 9. Um, Daniel chapter 9. Because Jesus said, go look at what Daniel wrote about the abomination of desolation. 
So we have three places where Daniel has a revelation about the abomination of desolation. Two of them I'm not going to open today, okay? Two of them that you can look at them, but just for time's sake, we're not going to go there. Daniel 11.31, Daniel 11.31, I think those are in the notes on the back of the bulletin, and Daniel 12.11 also. But let's look at Daniel chapter 9. So verses 26 and 27, I'm just kind of cherry-picking. There's a whole lot here in the context but I want to focus on this, on this word that the Lord's put on my heart about the love of the truth. So look at verses 26 and 27. In, in verse 26, and this is a revelation coming and being given to Daniel, it says uh, the, 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 the word that's being spoken to him by the messenger from God uh, says, Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, if you've never read that before, you're thinking, what does that even mean? That is weird. But I want to tell you, that's actually, I don't even, that's not weird. It's not even confusing. It's so straightforward and so easy to understand. But I'm not teaching on that today all these times. I have taught on it before and we will again. But the Messiah, you can count this up. Okay, this is, this is just a fact, that the Messiah actually was cut off. Jesus was crucified on the 69th week. It says 62 weeks, but there's another seven included in that, if you read the whole context. Exactly to the day, exactly to the year that this was prophesied to Daniel, from the start time to the finish time. Not from the moment the prophecy was given, but from the moment that the decree was given to rebuild the temple. Okay, that part already happened. But there's another seven years left to come. And that seven years gets divided into two halves. You've got three and a half, and you've got three and a half. And only time will tell, and only hindsight will show us how that exactly plays out. And I've told you this before, I think, but I even sometimes have this feeling that that's already started. Because the abomination of desolation doesn't come until the middle of it. The time of the Great Tribulation is not the whole seven years. It's the last three and a half years. The first three and a half years, you might not even know what starts that. Jesus is talking about how you'll know that the last three and a half years starts. Okay, But he tells us, go look, go look at Daniel. And we do see some interesting things here in Daniel. So Daniel talks about a prince that is coming. And he tells us clearly who that prince is. Although we don't have a name. Okay, He says that this is a prince of the people who destroy the city. The city is Jerusalem. Who destroyed the city in 70 AD? The Romans. So he tells us clearly that a Roman prince is coming. Okay? Well, that means he's coming from Italy. Well, then you just have a really bad understanding of history. Because a Roman prince could be anywhere from the President of the United States to the President of Russia and a whole lot of other countries or somebody completely new that pops up from the middle of that. Because Rome continued on into the West 
and into the east, okay? This, this is a huge amount of territory. You're not going to guess ahead of time, but this will be a major world leader that arises from Rome, from a biblical prophetic understanding of Rome anyway. He, he might be from Italy, or she, I don't know. Actually, it does have to be a man, because that's pretty clear too in there. But anyway, it says that this Roman prince, he's going to make a firm covenant and he's going to make this covenant for one week. But in prophetic terms, that one week means seven years. So he's going to make a seven-year covenant. It doesn't say that the covenant will say this is only for seven years. But it does say that God's understanding is that this is only going to last for seven years. We don't know what's going to be written in that covenant. Okay? But he's going to make a covenant. The word covenant in the Hebrew means the same thing as treaty, accord, peace treaty, I mean, go down the line. It's any kind of treaty or accord made between nations, between people. And so this covenant will be made. It says that it will be made with the many. And I've talked about this before, but prophetically and in the scripture, when it says the many, it's talking about Israel. But when we talk the people of Israel, but it's not talking about all of Israel. It's talking about the elect, about the people of God, Okay the people of God by faith. So we take this over to the New Testament without doing a long teaching on this. It's very, the, the, the elect, the people of God, God's Israel are made up of both Jew and Gentile today by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So it, it, it has something to do with us, the church also. And though we probably are not going to get to Revelation 12 today, when we get there, you'll see that clearly. It'll probably be ne next week. So there's some kind, so let's just, let's just put this in a context you can understand this in a simple way. That actually has some application to our life. Some world leader is going to make some kind of treaty with the people of God, okay? Some kind of agreement with the people of God, okay? I actually believe that this will relate to what we like to call the church and to the nation of Israel, both. Because those two are very obviously very closely intertwined with one another, okay? Some kind of treaty, and that's the beginning of the seven years. That's not so clear when that starts and how that starts. Jesus doesn't emphasize that. But he says halfway through that, three and one half years, that treaty is going to be broken. And how is it going to be broken? This prince is going to put a stop to the daily sacrifice, okay? He's going to put a stop to uh, the, the offerings that are being brought in. Well, a lot of people interpret that. That means the temple has to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Well, maybe it will be rebuilt in Jerusalem, but that does not have to mean the temple has to be rebuilt in Jerusalem because the Old Testament sacrifices, the New Testament clearly tells us they've been completely done away with. The real sacrifice today is the body of Christ. You know, that, that Jesus gave us this is my body, which is broken for you. This is the blood of my New Testament, right? And so this could have something to do with persecution of the church. This could have something to do with the breaking of this treaty and this promise and stopping the churches from being churches, from knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. We've had experience with that in COVID already, people. We've had experience with that. I'm not saying that's that. Maybe that's just a dress rehearsal. Maybe, I, I don't know. I'm not really clear. But what I am clear about is this. Jesus said that at some point, 
there's going to come an abomination of desolation put into the holy place, an idol erected in the, in the, in the temple of God, in the house of God. How many of you know that idols are constantly uh, being lifted up in, in our lives? And that's a whole, what, I was talking about the first part of this this morning. That's what the world wants to do, that we would worship idols instead of God that we would worship mammon instead of God. And, and Jesus said, you cannot worship mammon and God. It's an impossibility because your house is then divided against itself. Okay? So this is going to happen. And when it happens, you're going to know this. You're going to see this. And he says, you better be ready for this. And it's told about here in Daniel. So he'll, he'll make this covenant with God's people, but he breaks that covenant three and a half years into his mandate by stopping the sacrifices and offerings. And then there will come three and a half years of great tribulation as there's never been on the earth and it will come on the wing of these abominations. But, go back to Matthew 24. Jesus also, he doesn't just tell us about the start time. He also tells us about the time of the finish. He also tells us about the time of the finish. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Well, do you all know what the word after means? It means after. <laughs> it doesn't mean seven years before. It doesn't mean a year before. It means after. And it's just so clear. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. So this is a moment that Jesus designated. And he said, this is when the great trumpet will be. The last trumpet the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, all these things we looked at last week, and this will be the time of the gathering of the elect from the earth to the cloud of his coming. So we understand the time if we just simply read what Jesus said. What I want to get into is, really the whole focus of this is what we're getting into next, is what, what's Jesus' plan for victory? You know, what's his strategy here? Because... Okay, so we have to be here. So things are going to get rough. Things are going to get hard. You know, there's persecution coming against the church. Shutting down the churches during COVID is going to be like, you know, child's play compared to the stuff that's coming. What exactly is your plan for victory? I'm willing to stand here, you know, Lord, with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and, 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 and I want to take my position. I want to occupy until you come, you know. I want to be a good soldier, uh, and fight the good fight of faith, but how do I do this? And I, I think the key is in this understanding of that we be lovers of truth, that we stand for truth. What is the sword of the Spirit? It is the Word of God that we have. When Jesus comes, what do we see in Revelation? That he has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. That we are those who love the truth, and we speak the truth, and we live according to the truth. So in Matthew 24, again, let's just read together, and I'm going to read them kind of slowly, from verse 16, okay? So let's look at verse 16, because he actually tells his listeners what to do. He says, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So the first part of his plan for victory, flee to the mountains. That's a weird plan for victory, run away. Now, that doesn't sound like a good plan for victory. It's a great plan for victory. 
Because what he's doing is consolidating his forces into cities of refuge, into families where the truth matters, where people stand for the truth. Gather your family together. Gather together with those who are like you. Flee to the mountains, he said. Okay? And this, this has historical and specific uh, um, uh, importance and, and application to the nation of Israel that I'm just not getting into today. But let's hear what God's saying to us spiritually today. He says, first of all, flee to the mountains. Then he says, whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in the, his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. So he says, flee to the mountains. Then he says, don't turn back for anything. Who turned back? Lot's wife, right? Don't turn back. Because as soon as you go back to get that, you're doomed. Flee. Flee the youthful lusts. Flee to the mountains. Go to the place where I'm calling you. Go to the point where I'm mustering my troops. Verse 19. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Well, that means you're going to take your children out with you. It's going to be hard. They may not like it. What nursing baby is going to like to flee the mountains? But take your kids with you. Take the responsibility. Have the guts to take them with you too. You're going to take your children, your grandchildren with you. You and your house will be saved. Verse 20. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Okay? Start praying now. We don't know what's going to come. But are you praying today? Are you praying today, Lord, help my way not to be hindered to serve you? In practical things, Lord, help me to be free from debt. Lord, help me to be in a position where my way is not hindered. Whatever you call me to do, whatever you want for me to do, even if what you want for me to do is for me to hunker down in this place and receive refugees spiritually and be a, a, a city of refuge. That's the call that God's put on this church in Yerington, by the way. Do you know that? That vision God gave to this church long before I became the pastor, and I have a whole story about how God confirmed it to me. This is to be a city of refuge. Our lives are to be places that receive others. But are we prepared for that? You know, what, 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 how can we pray today so that our way will not be hindered later? And then verse 22, he says, unless, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And there's a whole teaching on that that I'm not getting into. But you need to understand that even that three and a half years, God in his mercy will cut those days short so that you can be saved. So pray and trust God to cut the day short. We talked about this last week, that he'll send you relief, that he'll send you help. If you feel like you can't make it, tell him about it. Ask for relief. You know, if you were the captain over some troops holding down the fort at some place, you know, and you know, if, if they would have had a phone at the Alamo and there would have been some troops, they wouldn't have just said, oh, we just want to die so we can be heroes of the Alamo. They would have called more in, but there was nobody else to come. That's why they're heroes, because they held the Alamo as long as they could, right? But if you can call for help, call for help. Well, God tells us you can call for help. He's got a whole army of angels on our side. And so he says, you know, that ask him 
Trust him to cut those days short. And then verse 23. And by the way, that applies to every tribulation you're going through in life. Whether it's something about raising your kids, something about your health, whatever it is. Ask him, Lord, I need some relief. Send me some help. You know, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's suffering for our sin, right? And even though he's suffering for our sin, the Bible says that he's praying and that his sweat is like great drops of blood flowing down on him, but God sends angels there to minister to him. Even Jesus needed help. Even he needed relief so that he could go all the way to the cross. So ask him for that help. Trust him for that help. He will cut those days short. And then verse 23, he says, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs or Messiahs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. This is really important. This is part of Jesus' plan for victory. Wake up and stop being deceived. Don't allow yourself to be deceived. There are so many false messiahs today. And they always, more and more, they, they just pr proliferate. False messiahs. And they've got false signs. They've got false wonders. And you will be deceived if you're not abiding in the Word of God. I promise you that. Jesus said, I've told you in advance. Did you see that? That's like saying, I'm telling you this. Please pay attention. The very elect will be deceived if you don't wake up and listen to my word. You've got to hold on to the truth or you're going to be taken away by every lie that comes and is coming down the road. An entire generation has been swept away by the lies that I was talking about at the beginning of this sermon. And the entire image of God has been driven out of our schools, out of our lives, out of everything because of so-called science. Okay, And the Bible actually uses that term, so-called or pseudo-science. But there's a real science. There's a real knowledge. The knowledge of the Word of God that will protect you from being deceived. And then verse 26, it says, So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Okay? Behold, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So don't allow yourself to be led out of the secret place of the Most High under the shadow of the Almighty. Because when you dwell in that place, you are safe. We looked, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, at Nehemiah. What was the enemy trying to do to Nehemiah? To get him to come down from the wall. He's building the wall, and the enemy keeps telling him, you've got to come down. We've got to have a meeting. We've got to go. And then the prophet says to him, you've got to come over here into this secret place. We've got to enter into these quiet rooms and have our little meeting. And Nehemiah will not allow himself to be deceived. But what it means is that Nehemiah is made fun of. People laugh at him. People say he's a conspiracy theorist, he's this, he's a crazy nut or whatever. But Nehemiah's like, I don't care what you say. I have one job and one job only, and it's to build this wall. 
And so I'm not coming down from this wall because it's too important to God. And, you know, Noah was the same way. I got one job and one job only. It's to build an ark for the salvation of my family. An ark for the salvation of my family. And the New Testament says, in doing so, he condemned the entire world. Okay? So I'm going to go all King James on you. Okay? So don't get offended. It's King James. It's biblical. But Noah's basically saying, damn the world. I'm going to save my family. Okay? This is an ark that I'm building for the salvation of my family. That's in the New Testament. That's what the church, the local church, is supposed to be. That's what our families are supposed to be. Arks. You know what an ark does? It floats on top of the water. It doesn't sink. That we, for the salvation of our family. An ark of truth. A place to stand where God has called us and He has placed us. And that place is called, and I love that verse, the secret place of the Most High under the shadow of the Almighty. Because nobody, nobody can touch you there. But Satan knows he can't touch you there. So what's he going to do? Hey, Jesus is over here. Go to this conference. Hey, Jesus is over here. Go to that country. Hey, Jesus is over there. You better get over here. You better get over there. And you're going to be running around, running around, running around. And you're just going to be picked off by the devil. Keep your feet planted where God's put you. Stay inside in the middle of God's will. It's the safest place to be is in the middle of God's will. And I've experienced that in my personal life and could tell you stories of when I knew I was at the safest place I could be even though it was a place that anybody else would think is dangerous. And I felt no fear at all because I knew I was in the middle of God's will. When you're in the middle of God's will, it gives you such confidence that you can go right into the lion's den like Daniel. And you know that you're safe. You can be put into a fiery furnace like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you can say words like, well, if it's God's will for us to die today, then we're going to burn up like crispy french fries in there. But if it's not, nothing's going to happen and we're going to be safe. And we're okay with that. And then they're safe. Or you can be like Esther. And you can say, well, if I perish, I perish. It just is what it is. But I'm going to do God's will no matter what. Because I believe in resurrection. And I believe that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will never die. And so the only thing that's really important is that I be in God's will and that I do God's will. And then verse 28, and I'm just going just to end with this. We've got a lot more to go, but I've got to teach on it. We'll do it next week. Verse 28, Jesus says, Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Well, if you don't remember anything else from what I said today, you've got to remember that. That's probably the most important thing. Wherever the corpse is, that's where the vultures gather. Do you get it? Don't be where the corpses are. Because vultures are going to gather there and they're going to pick your brains out. They're going to gouge your eyeballs out. Wherever corpses are, that's where vultures gather. So don't be where the corpses are. Don't be in that culture of death don't be attached to and bound to that culture of lies. Stay out of that place, in the secret place of the Most High, under the shadow of the Almighty. I had, I've shared this probably a hundred times, but it's just, I, lo I loved it. <laughs> I had this teacher in Bible college, it was this really super old man, and he lived to be 90-something. Tanya even got to meet him. We were at a park one day, 
And here comes this, at the Rama Park, and here comes this really old man just tottering through that park and feeding the little ducks like this. And I look at him, it's Cooper Beatty. I want you to meet him. She goes, who? I go, we got to go meet this old guy. But anyway, he was this really old, he was old when I was in Bible college. He was probably 70-something, but I was 20-something, so he was like really old. And uh, uh, I remember he always had these things, before he did his lesson, he always said, I'm going to give you some golden nuggets of truth. And then he'd have these little short sayings, things like what Lad told me yesterday about not test driving because you know the manufacturer. And, uh, and one time he said this, he, he said, uh, well, uh, I can't remember the exact way he said it, but he said this, if God told you that tomorrow, and he's standing behind a pulpit like this, if God, he said, if God told me that tomorrow at 12 noon, he's going to strike this pulpit with lightning and it's going to blow to smithereens, and I'm still standing here at 12 noon tomorrow, and I get destroyed by that lightning bolt, then some people are going to say, God struck Cooper Beatty with lightning. Well, that ain't the truth. The truth is God told me to get away from there, but I didn't get away from there. So I got struck by lightning because I didn't get out of the place that he told me to get out of. Do you understand? Well, we're going to get into this next week. I'm going to talk about, and I hope you will understand this, about how exactly do we flee to the mountains? What is this that Jesus is even talking about? What does he mean, run away and flee to the mountains? And we're going to get into in Revelation where it says come out of Babylon. And then it also says go out into the wilderness. And we're going to talk about these things. And I want you to have this, you're, you're going to get this understanding of how when we stand in the truth, then we are completely separated from this world. Okay? And people think, well, then we're not preaching the gospel. No, that's the only time we're preaching the gospel. Because we're showing people there's a way to be saved. But you actually, I mean, look at the elephants. Here come a boy elephant and a girl elephant. They just got in. Oh, there go the giraffes. They just got in. Why don't you get in the ark? Even the animals understand that. There's a way to be saved, but it's not going to happen if you stay out there. You've got to get inside. And to get inside, you've got to repent. You've got, and all that means is just turn around and say, okay, I reject those lies. I'm, I'm going to embrace the truth. And I promise you this. It makes, it, because this is God's instruction book, things start working. I mean, how many of you can testify to the fact that when you started doing what God says to do, all of a sudden things actually worked? And it was like, wow, that really works. I'm actually not in debt anymore, or I'm actually not having these problems anymore. You know, I'm, I'm actually healthier now, whatever, because I'm just doing what God said to do. Amen. Let's stand together. And we got a song. Like I said, I got so much revelation, I don't even know where to stop. We're just going to stop right there. It's 1130. Okay, but we'll pick up there next week. Father, I just thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord, that I just pray for every single man, woman, and child who is related to any single one of us today for them to be saved. Amen. So that nobody is left behind, Lord. Gather us to your mountain of truth. Help us, Lord, just to flee from this Babylon of destruction. And gather us unto your mountain of truth, Lord, that we might be saved. Position us, Lord, for these last days that we might truly preach this gospel of the kingdom, this gospel 
in every nation, as you said in Matthew 24, 14. And then the end will come. Lord, we've watered down the message so much. We so compromise things because we don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. And we don't want to hurt people's feelings. But I'd rather see their feelings hurt and them saved than for them to burn in hell and that to be because we didn't tell them. Amen. Lord, don't let the blood of this generation be on our hands. Help us, Lord, to warn them, to tell them. Help us to teach our own children and our grandchildren. Give us your, your grace and your mercy, Lord. Lord, we just offer our lives up to you as a living sacrifice that we might know that, that good, that perfect uh, will of God in our lives, Lord, that it might be completely fulfilled in our lives. It has nothing to do with, with how great we are. I mean, the only instruction you said is just get up and flee. You're going to do the rest as long as we position ourselves with you. As we side with you, Lord, and we gather unto you, Lord. I just pray, Lord, that you would foster on the inside of us, nurture on the inside of us a real love for truth. That just be our passion, our love, Lord, to know you because you are the way, the truth, and the life. Mm. And we have no way to get to the Father God. We have no way to come back home. We're just prodigals. Just lost kids. We have no way to get back to you. Except by you, Jesus. And you've opened the way for us today. Lord, I don't want you standing out in the cold any longer. You stand at that door and you knock. And you just say, if, if anybody, just get up and open the door for me. I'm going to come in. We're going to have dinner together. Things are going to be awesome. I'm going to so, it's going to be such a blessing for you, such joy for you. So don't leave me out in the cold. I stand at the door and I knock. Just let me in. Lord, we just open that door right now. We take the chain off. One, undo the deadbolt. We turn the knob. <coughs> And we just say, okay, Jesus, just come in. I really wasn't ready for you. My house is a mess. I didn't even prepare anything. But just come in. Just come in. You said you want to come in, so come in. And wait and see. When you open that door for Jesus, he's going to bring the dinner in. He's going to bring the joy in. He's going to bring the new clean house in because he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Just let him in. Amen. Thank you. Let's just sing together. Let's worship the Lord as we close this morning. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvineyardfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.